to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 294. I'm your host, Annika Harrison, and joining me this week is my co-host Pontus Böckmann. Hello. Hey, son, hey, son. I, I thought you were going to bring Andras with you. Yeah, so I've I did I've seen work. the pictures on the Facebook. <laughs> if Facebook is working, which is not always, uh, apparently. But when it's there, I saw the two of you um, having a good time. What happened? Yeah, we were very happy. We met uh, in Frankfurt yesterday. So yesterday is Monday. And yeah, had a really good time. I, I could notice Andras in his element. <laughs> right. So did he do a good was, job? He did, like, so far as I can tell, because I, I I didn't get much outside of European Union or other words that are the same in Hungarian and German. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he definitely seemed had the air of an expert around him. <laughs> yeah. So, so you did follow uh, him with an. Yeah. There was a Hungarian group of tourists, and you were yes. there, and you listened to him being the guide. Exactly. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, okay. And then, and then we had a bit of a lunch break had some lunch and then um then i had to leave again so, oh, okay. but it was it was really good and the, the group was also really nice and yeah it was they, a good time <laughs> they weren't kindergarten children like he said they were <laughs> well i don't think he always has the same kind of groups <laughs> <laughs> maybe this was the good group certainly <laughs> <laughs> oh it's a pity we don't have him here on the show today but if we did i know what he would talk about there is a number of people going to space again i know he loves that so we have and this is theme at the moment so we have actors in space Ooh. The actors race to space. The race of space. <laughs> race of space. Ace of space. No, that's another thing. Okay, no, <laughs> let's not get sidetracked here. Um, there was a Russian film crew of two people who uh, went up to the ISS on fifth of October. That was that's today actually. That's today, right? As we record it, it was today. Yes. Yeah. So they are on their way up to the ISS to actually film something. There's a, there's a film event happening and they're very proud in Russia because that's the first time uh, anybody's done that. We know that uh, Tom Cruise has talked about it and there's other plans, but the Russians won this space race in getting um, recording a film up in space. But uh, the Americans are not far behind because William Shatner, 90 years old, is going next week into space on the Blue Origin, the, wow. the Jeff Bezos uh, phallic-like uh, spaceship. <laughs> and for you, I'm, I'm a boomer myself, so I, I, of course, know who William Shatner is, but for you millennials out there or Generation <laughs> Z or Alpha, is. yeah, you know who he is, yes. That's, but you're, you're okay. I'm a nerd, yeah, say it, just say it. <laughs> Maybe just uh, to refresh people who might have forgotten, <laughs> William Shatner played the first Captain Kirk on the Star Trek series, uh, which was in the uh, 60s, 1969, 68. I, I can't remember exactly the year now. but uh, So he's been around for a while and he has never been to space, even though he's famous for being a space captain. So now they're going to send him up to space if he survives until then which is next week on the 12th of october 
he will be the the real Captain Kirk in space there for <laughs> for a short period of time, and that's yeah. that's nice. I'm sure, as I said, I'm sure that Andras appreciates this, um, and I do too. And I, I think it's fun, and we we're seeing the tourist industry of of space is taking off, pun intended. Uh, it'll be a while until you and I can go, Annika, but it's uh, starting. <laughs> it's starting. It's exciting times. Right. And I think without further ado, maybe we should just jump into the show now. I feel very inspired after having <laughs> met Andros yesterday. And right. um, because we're all excited for QED and for ESC next year. So, yeah, why don't we just jump in? <laughs> Let's do that. Yeah, and as our listeners know, we usually start the show with This Week in Skepticism. And This Week in Skepticism, I want to talk about Niels Hendrik David Bohr. So, Niels Bohr. Mm -hmm. And he was born on the 7th of October 1885 in Copenhagen, Denmark, and died on the 18th of November 1962. He was uh, a Danish physicist, and most people will know him for his Bohr model. Not to be confused with a boring model. <laughs> yes, <laughs> not a boring, <laughs> but a bore model. <laughs> That's actually the, the atom model that I still learned in school with, which is pretty funny. Uh, yeah, so he contributed to the knowledge about atomic structure and quantum theory and received the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1922. Interestingly enough, he also was a philosopher. And yeah, as I said, he developed the Bohr model, not the boring, <laughs> and discovered that electrons resolve in stable orbits around the core. And um, then he also discovered the principle of complementarity that I can't really explain, but it's lucky that we have Andros here. Uh, oh, wait a minute. Oh, we, don't. <laughs> we don't, we don't. <laughs> yeah, so we don't. Yeah, but as I like, I'm, I tried my best. I couldn't really make heads and toes. <laughs> I will not pretend to be uh, competent enough to talk about that either. So yeah. let's uh, leave that for another day. Yeah. I mean, we'll he did. To <laughs> There's a reason he got the Nobel Prize, right? He, he was a exactly. smart dude. He was. He was. And, um, but also, maybe we can also say if one of our listeners knows how this principle works and can explain it in a few sen short sentences, you can also send that into info at the ASP.eu and we would be thrilled to play it. Oh, yes. Because we always want to learn too. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You can be, you can pretend to be Andras for, for a just yes. brief moment of time there. <laughs> yes, that would be cool. Mm. <laughs> so, but Niels Bohr, back to Niels Bohr, he founded the Institute of Theoretical Physics in Copenhagen and he also helped refugees from Nazi Germany like Otto Frisch or Stefan Rosenthal. And when his family was threatened to be arrested because his mother was Jewish, he fled to Sweden and then to Britain. He was the British or a British part of the Manhattan Project and also met Werner Heisenberg, who was also a very important scientist. Bohr also resigned his membership in the Church of Denmark in 1912 before getting married, which is I think interesting for a lot of people that he was a scientist who denounced his church membership. Niels Bohr was also involved with the establishment of CERN, which is the Large Hadron Collider, as we know. And after the war, he returned to Copenhagen, so in 1945. All in all, Niels Bohr was an important 
European scientist contributing to science. <laughs> so that's why I just want to say happy birthday. <laughs> happy birthday. If you, you go back to the Bohr mo model, we've all seen that. that. This is the model where you see the nucleus of the atom in the middle, and then you see all the electrons going around in like, almost like a planetary system, right? With the electrons being the planets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. What I understand now is that it is a great simplification and it's not at all really what it is, but yes. it's a way to visualize it for, for us uh, mortals. But it's much more complicated than that in, in real life, I guess. Yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. But yeah, his meeting with Heisenberg is also interesting because Heisenberg developed the next model after that. Ah. So <laughs> Heisenberg and Schrödinger. So um, yeah. It's an important person. Yeah, and it's good to see that even... I mean, we have the saying about standing on the shoulders of giants. Every model evolves and the next person takes it one step further. And yeah. that's how science builds on previous theories and uh, improves. Exactly, yeah. And um, talking about standing on the shoulders of giants and improving... Or quite the contrary, <laughs> do we have anything to poke the Pope for? Yes, we do. So this week, uh, there's actually a call forward here to next week, because I think there will be more to talk about next week. But there's a lot of legal things happening this week that will have happened. Some of it will have happened when this episode goes out, but... It hasn't happened yet, so I'm sitting here waiting for it to happen. There is on Wednesday, which is tomorrow as we recall this, there will be the verdict in the trial against Gabriele Martinelli. He's accused for sexually abusing a younger student at the St. Pius X pre-seminary. And of course, we are not unused to hearing about sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. The thing with this one is that it actually happened on Vatican grounds. This was in the Vatican, which is why it's a little bit special. And I believe that the prosecution has, has requested a six-year sentence for Martinelli. And we will see how this ends up. This, the strange thing is that the defense actually has brought up that the whole atmosphere at this pre-seminary was very sexualized as a sort of an excuse for Martinelli's behavior is that the whole the whole pre-seminary was very sexualized and there was a sexualized environment. And that's a very strange defense, I think. And it's also very telling about... It's not... I mean, it's not exactly helping the Catholic Church image. So that's one of the legal things that's happening this week. Then there is an older case, really, uh, the Provolo case. It is from Argentina. This is about a deaf and hearing impaired school. Or rather, the school wasn't, but the students were deaf and or hearing impaired at the school. And there was there's two priests already having been sentenced to 40 years or more uh, in prison. That happened in 2019, I believe. But what's happening this week is that there are survivors from these, this school and they are in Geneva trying to get an audience with the UN and urging them to take up the case again because apparently they feel that justice has not been done even though two people are now in prison. 
Then we have the trial of the century, as it's been called. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> it's being, I've talked about this before, and it's being resumed this week. So not a lot of news yet, but it, more than that, it now it's really beginning. And this is the case against Cardinal Angelo Becciu, who was involved in a very shady uh, real estate deal in London using... Uh, Money from Peter Spence, which is the charity which people from all around the world contribute to every year. And it's supposed to go to the needy, to the poor. But the joke is that it's gone to the greedy instead. And uh, not it wasn't supposed to be used for making fancy real estate deals in the middle of London. All of it fell through. The deal never happened, but a lot of money was spent on uh, on consultants and other fees and uh, the Vatican lost a lot of money on this and um, Cardinal Angelo Becciu is of course not just a cardinal he was also the sostituto for the Pope and that that is a very important role in the Vatican where you actually administrate all you fix all the Pope's meetings and you make sure that as they say, the trains go on time, you know, they organize his schedule, etc. And um, he was, of course, fired from that position. He is now a cardinal only in name. All his privileges as a cardinal has been taken away from him. It'll be interesting to see how this ends because there's also talk about other people being involved who are not charged, not part of this trial. For one, the Pietro Parolin, who is the Secretary of State in the Vatican, he has signed all the papers of all the transactions for this uh, real estate deal, but he's not in, in for some reason in <laughs> on the on trial for this. Interesting and a rather shady business. Yeah. So a lot of legal stuff going on there in in the Vatican that I guess uh, Francis has to worry about. But then we have the real killer news for this week, which was the report from France. An investigation was published and it revealed that over a number of years, many decades, they have identified around 3,000 abusers within the French Catholic Church. That's out of a total of 115,000 priests and other clerics. That's quite a high percentage like almost 3% of all priests and clerics in the French Catholic Church has turned out to be sexual abusers. The head of this inquiry accused the church of showing a cruel indifference towards the victims. That was the quote. It's a long report. It's 2,500 pages long and well. it's all in French. <laughs> And uh, spoilers, I haven't read it all, but uh, <laughs> or any of it really. I've read the report of it. But it says that the vast majority of these victims were boys, uh, many of them between 10 and 13 years old. And the shocking number comes now. They have established that at least 216,000 victims have been identified. And they say this is the minimum. They expect this number to rise maybe to 330,000 when they also start taking into account abuses committed by lay members of the church, such as teachers in, at Catholic schools and other, other functions. 
we have learned not to be surprised or uh, so, but I'm still shocked when I read these numbers. It, it is terrible. Hundreds of thousands of lives have been devastated by, yeah. by these uh, terrible idiots. And of course, we all wonder what um, Frankie thinks about all of this. He says uh, that, quote, he felt pain, end quote, oh. <laughs> when he heard about this. So should we feel sorry for him <laughs> that he feels pain? I mean, how about some... I know, I know the, the Pope is supposed to be uh, all about forgiveness, etc. But I think... And how, how come he couldn't say that he felt angry about this? He should be angry. Everybody yeah. should be angry about this, even if you're the bloody Pope. It's like hitting someone and then saying... Oh, my hand hurt. <laughs> uh, so there's a Vatican statement out, and it also mentioned the deep sadness, quote-unquote, that uh, Francis feels about all of this. But it's not about you, Francis. Yeah. Hmm. Don't, don't center yourself. In a way, it sounds like he's more focusing on himself than on the actual victims. Yeah, he's the actual victim there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Poor Frankie. Yeah, thank you, Pontus. That was thank a you. good update. Speaking about updates, today we won't do a COVID update, so we will just run over to the news items and jump straight into it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and we start with a news item about the third jab or the booster shots. The European Medicines Agency, EMA, they recommend an extra dose now, so-called the booster. Mm -hmm. And they recommend boosters for the vaccines Comirnaty, which is BioNTech-Pfizer, and Spikevax, which is Moderna. Yeah, had you heard that before? That well, was news to me. That, <laughs> that was they news to me too. The Moderna vaccine is now Spikevax. Yeah, which sounds pretty cool if you ask me. <laughs> Very pithy. Yeah, and they recommend this third shot to people with a severely weakened immune system because they could see that in a study that it was shown to the ability of increased antibodies. And they did the study with organ transplant patients, so people with weakened, like with severely weakened immune systems. Yes. It is expected that the dose would also increase the protection. And of course, it's very different to give the extra dose for people, like to people with weakened immune systems or to people that are healthy. Mm -hmm. So they say... It is recommended, but it mostly will be issued nationally. So um, there might be differences in what states say, what actual states say. In the long run, it's still more important that people get vaccinated at all, because these are like the, the, the turning points of the pandemic. And you can get a third jab and it will help you. But in the long run, it helps everyone more if people get vaccinated or not yet. Yeah, that's a difficult decision to take there, where what to prioritize. But they also said, I believe, that uh, for other people who are not compromised in any way, they do recommend uh, if you're over 18 years of age, you could get uh, the Comirnaty or the Pfizer vaccine six months after your second dose. So a booster shot also for, well, the rest of us. But as you said, it's up to the local countries to actually implement uh, these things. The EMA is only issuing recommendations for in, in general and then it's up to the member states of the EU to implement uh, whatever they feel is appropriate. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Okay, uh, change of subject now, totally different, back to space in a way. 
classical skeptical uh, subject of UFOs. Because there was a couple... Well, it's more than a week ago. So it's 10 days ago as we record this. There was a spectacular UFO sighting in Wales. And of course, being in Wales, I will not be able to properly pronounce the village or the city where it happened or the town where it happened. But I I believe it's supposed to be pronounced something like Thangothen. Of course, it's spelled totally different. But anyway, I've been to Wrexham, which is pretty close to it. So in the northern part of Wales, there was many, many witnesses and several videos of a very strange light in the sky. And there's a history there as well of viewing very strange phenomena in the sky around this area. So a lot of people were convinced that now... We have a confirmation of what we've said all along. There is something going on here. There it made it made the news, but of course, in the end, there was an explanation for what happened. It actually was an Atlas V rocket uh, from uh, the U.S. carrying NASA's Landsat 9 satellite. It was launched from Vandenberg Space Force Base in the uh, in the U.S. And about two hours after takeoff, this uh, rocket performed a reversing maneuver, whatever that is, releasing glowing clouds of vapor. And that is what people saw. This happens, but normally you can't really see it from Europe. But uh, if the sky is particularly clear, as it was last week, you could get a glimpse of this stellar spectacle, as it was described in in the papers. Sorry, no UFOs. Well, it was a UFO because it was unidentified for a while. But there were no little green men and no aliens involved. It was um, an actual space rocket, which was close enough, I guess. (laughs) Well, it was a foe, but not a UFO. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. In Europe, there's something actually happening where one European says to another, Honey, I shrunk the mountain. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't know if you know this, the actual movie, which is about like how I shrunk the children. Uh, yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that was a bit before my time, but I still remember that title. I'm a boomer. We have established that already. <laughs> yeah, but what sounds funny is that it's actually true because Mont Blanc seems to have lost about 30 centimeters every year since 2001. Mm-hmm. And like for those who don't know, Mont Blanc is a big mountain in the French Alps. The um, highest in Europe, I believe. Yes, yes. Uh, and, well, it used to be. I don't know if this keeps up. Maybe it's just <laughs> going to be reduced to a little yeah, hill. might be. Um, there was an expedition in mid-September into the French Alps, and they measured Mont Blanc to be 4,807.81 meters. In 2017, they did that too, and then it was still 4,808.72 meters. So that's one meter less, mm-hmm, just about roughly one meter. Now, climatologists, glaciologists, and other scientists are asked to get together and find theories of trying to explain this data. The highest reading of Mont Blanc so far was 4,810.90 meters in 2007. But it's also a fact that the readings vary from year to year because of snow layers that are very different depending on like what year is behind Mont Blanc. The altitude of of the mountain has always varied. 
Climate crisis could still be a part of it shrinking because it could be like an ancient snow layer, like a glacier that's melting. But we also shouldn't rush to conclusions. That's actually what the expert Denise Borel says, or maybe pronounced differently. Dear listeners, you know what to do. (laughs) Yes, send your pronunciations into info at the ESP.eu and we will play the right pronunciation on the next episode. Exactly. (laughs) So he says because of the inherent variations, we shouldn't really say it's that and it's that. But scientists are asked to get together and to find out why the mountain is still shrinking. (laughs) Yeah. No, but it's a fair... I mean, of course, we shouldn't jump to conclusions, but I guess it is not very far-fetched to assume that it has to do with climate change. I mean, what else could it be? But uh, let the researchers work that out. Yeah, exactly. So uh, another interesting researcher that we quote almost every week on the show here is uh, Edzard Ernst. And this week he has looked into the sale of uh, dietary supplements. And uh, he has noticed something. Well, he's reading the statistics and it's not hard to draw the conclusions. But dietary supplements are... It's it's a billion dollar euro whatever currency you want uh, business, and most of it, I, I mean, would I would guess ninety nine percent of it is for no good reason at all. People just want to take these supplements, and the the truth is that if you don't have a deficiency to begin with, the the supplements don't won't do anything. If you have a fairly good intake of normal food and you eat a little bit of lettuce sometimes and a bit of tomato and you you have a varied diet, you probably don't need a dietary supplement unless, of course, your doctor has prescribed it for you. And uh, then you should talk to your doctor, not to, to me. Or if you have a, like, a very restrictive diet, I think, then... Right, you can make it difficult for yourself uh, by being a vegan or, yeah, or exactly. other... Th- uh, and, and then you may have to supplement a little bit to compensate for what you're missing out on. But anyway, the majority, vast majority of all the, the supplement dietary supplement sales, it, it's in a way it's a scam because you, you think you do something, well, maybe just in case I will take this supplement and it, you really probably don't need it. Anyway, what has happened lately over the last couple of years? It, it is a growing business. It has been for for some time. It's been growing with like three, four, five percent every year. But then came COVID, and uh, what happened then was that it just skyrocketed. Uh, in the US, it, uh, imp- it I almost said improved, but it <laughs> it increased by forty four percent from two thousand nineteen to two thousand and twenty. And you have um, similar in Europe, probably the rest of the world, that around between forty and sixty percent increase in the sales of these supplements. And the reason isn't very difficult to speculate on. Of course, I don't know why people are doing this, but it's very easy to assume that people are scared of uh, the pandemic and they feel that if I compensate, if I lead a more healthy life, maybe I won't be hit as bad if I get sick and uh, these supplements are skyrocketing in sales. And it is um, not harmless, I would say. 
very rarely does it mean physical harm to you to eat these supplements. It could do it could. sometimes <laughs> if you overconsume some supplements. But most of it is actually a financial harm. You're spending a lot of money for things that you don't need and probably you could use that money for, for other things. And what's happening is that a number of companies are making lots and lots and lots of money on things that you don't need to buy. So we will link to that uh, article of Edsa Dernst. And uh, of course, he has links and a lot more facts behind this uh, on his website. So speaking of um, investigations of what's happening, research in what the public does and does not do, there was an investigation uh, about who people tend to trust during this pandemic. And of course, we are skeptics, scientific skeptics. We always feel you should listen to the scientists. But it's interesting to hear what uh, normal people do, if you will. So this was an actual paper, which I haven't read because it's behind a paywall. But I've been reading news items from different countries about this paper. And this paper looked into who do people trust in during the pandemic. They looked into if you trust on scientists, if you trust on governments, if you trust on your social network, your friends and, and so on. And what, what has happened during the pandemic is that trust in scientists in overall has gone down. This is a longitudinal study, so it, it follows people across a couple of years. Originally, people started to trust scientists more, but as the pandemic kept developing, then people lost trust in, in scientists. Still, people trust scientists more than they trust their own government, which is, I think, good. I mean, governments are run by politicians, and politicians often have agendas, and they're not always very objective in their assessments and recommendations. Especially they looked at who people trusted when it came to what they call non-pharmaceutical interventions or NPIs. And what is that? It's non-pharmaceutical, so it's not about drugs, it's not about vaccines, but it's about mask wearing, lockdowns and physical distancing, things like that. So who do you listen to when it comes to that? Do you wear a mask or not? And uh, it was different in different countries. New Zealand, for instance, who did famously well at least in the beginning of the pandemics just until recently they've had some some issues then the, the trust for both government and scientists was very high but it's gone down a little bit in other countries and i don't have the full list of the findings there but in other countries it was a little bit different in france brazil italy and poland trust dramatically decreased over time with the people perceiving that scientists are more likely to hide information than to give information. So I've, I guess it's a natural psychological reaction. If things are not working, then you stop trusting the, the experts and you think they have something to hide because deep inside you think they know everything because they're, after all, the experts. But then if the advice they give do not pay off then they must be hiding something and then you go very quickly into conspiracy theory land and um, if you're not careful you can drop into this one of these rabbit holes and you never you <laughs> which you never recover from so it's different from countries to countries as i said in germany 
people do tend to trust the government a little bit more than in other countries. Mm. So <laughs> I don't know if it's good or bad. I think it is good uh, if if the government is not too populistic, if they are trying to do what the scientists are telling them to do. In other countries, maybe you shouldn't trust the government. So it's uh, different. But it's an interesting study. I'm, I'm sorry that they haven't made it open access because I would like to see this in a table where you could compare different countries. It was 12 different countries that they looked into and uh, it would be nice to be able to compare it. Yeah. Thank you, Pontus. That concludes our news segment. And with that, I would like to know, is there something today that was really right or really wrong? Yes, actually, this week, we're going back in time, Ooh. not just a couple of weeks or even a few years, but 120 years, because in 1901, the first Nobel Prize was uh, given out. And uh, the re reason I bring it up this week here is that the first Nobel Prizes for uh, 2021 has been announced. The first one was the prize in physiology or medicine. And that was awarded jointly to David Julius and Ardem Patapuitian. So people, you know what to do. Send me how it's really pronounced at info at theesp.eu. But they got it for, quote, their discoveries of receptors for temperature and touch, end quote. So that's pretty mm. important, basic information we need to know about our own bodies. How do these receptors work and uh, and why and how has it evolved? And then today, as we record it, the Nobel Prize in Physics for 2021 was awarded, quote, for groundbreaking contributions to our understanding of complex systems, end quote. And half of it uh, went jointly to Suyukuru Manabe and Klaus Hasselmann for, quote, the physical modeling of Earth's climate, quantifying variability and reliably predicting global warming, end quote. So that's part. So half of the prize went to these two guys directly connected with how to predict and measure global warming and uh, quantifying that. And that's very, very important. Now, I heard an, an interview with one of the people involved, Ulf Danielsson of the Swedish Nobel Committee, and he said that it, it came very timely because there's a lot of talk about uh, climate change at the moment and should be, of course. But he said that Nobel Prizes are not given out to accommodate for what is popular at the time. And this, this is a long process over several years. And it, But he agreed that it happened to be a good timing, but it was not an attempt to be populistic or, or current. But, but they only got half the prize. The other half of the prize went to the Italian... Giorgio Parisi for, quote, the discovery of the interplay of disorder and fluctuation in physical systems from atomic to planetary scales, end quote. I don't understand this particular, but I am not a <laughs> Nobel Prize laureate, but it is about um, chaos and how random things interplay with each other, how disorder interacts in different kinds of materials. You've been looking at glass, for instance, which is apparently very complex. For us, a glass is a glass or 
uh, or a window is a window (laughs) but it is apparently very complex how it comes together and it can have very different properties and uh, so but it is also as it said in the motivation applicable to planetary dimensions chaos is everywhere i guess and it is also applicable to global warming even if that is not the primary focus for this guy's research i bring this up because it's current and i bring this up because of the nobel prize per se i think uh, the nobel prize is a fantastic thing we may we take it sort of for granted but it has over the years over more than 100 years made research very public for 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 the common man and to have given it a lot of publicity it hasn't always been perfect of course we all are uh, very aware of that female scientists notoriously have been underrepresented that is partly a problem of the culture of course it's not just of the nobel committees etc but it's that's how the world has looked and still looks for, for for to some extent i don't know what alfred nobel himself would have said about this i'm sure since he lived a long time ago i guess he probably had a very dated view about women and women scientists because everybody had yeah. back mm-hmm. then yeah which is not an apology but it's it's true it's yeah, it's an explanation. He was a product of his yeah. time, as we all are. And I'm sure we do have a lot of things in our perception that will be f- feeling very, very uh, outdated uh, in 100 years. But anyway, uh, it, it, ha- it has improved over yes. time, I, I, I think, and I hope. And, but there's still more to do, obviously. But I hope we are on the right track. But to, to wrap this up... For inspiring scientists for 120 years, Alfred Nobel gets a little bit late, but (laughs) he gets today's prize for being really right. It was a good idea what you did, Alfred. (laughs) Well served. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Pontus. Thanks a lot. That concludes our show. But before we go and before I thank our listeners... I want to remind everyone that we have a very nice Patreon page. Oh, we do. Yes. um, If you want to, dear listeners, I would be very happy if you check it out. (laughs) Yeah. We we don't remind people often enough about this. And of course, we are not making a lot of money on this. (laughs) We are making very, very small amounts of money on this. But we could use the money if you could help us to improve the show and... uh, because there are some expenses we have a non-profit organization behind this we would very much like to be able to go to qed and other conferences and meet you guys in person and it costs money and we have to take time off off from work to do this so if you could help us out we would appreciate it very much so if you go to patreon.com slash the esp and pledge a little money for each episode we release it would be fantastic. Yeah, we would we would be very very happy. <laughs> yes. And also like don't don't think that oh yeah, if we only give like this or that then they will think I'm cheap. No, we will be happy for any any amount. It can be as little as you can afford. Yes, we are cheap. You can buy <laughs> our eternal uh, gratitude for just a, a dollar per month or yes, something. Yes, exactly. Like you can limit it and we will <laughs> still be very happy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Now we come to the end of the show. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
So thank you, Fontes. Thank you. Um, and thank you to our listeners. But of course, I don't want to let anyone go without a quote. And the quote is by a not European skeptic, but a skeptic uh, nonetheless that formed the skeptical movement a lot. <laughs> and the quote is by Carl Sagan, who lived from 1934 to 1996. And I don't think he needs further introduction because he is Carl Sagan. <laughs> <laughs> and the quote is, We live in a society exquisitely dependent on science and technology, in which hardly anyone knows anything about science and technology. The science of today is the technology of tomorrow. Right. Yeah, that's right. It is a good reminder that science is fantastic. We learn a lot and it satisfies our curiosity to know how things work, like uh, like the Nobel Prize in, in physiology and medicine about receptors for temperature and, and touch, right? That, that's interesting to know. But it also builds on our knowledge, and the knowledge leads to technology. And technology is something that we can use to create a better world. And you never know where the science will take you. I'm, I'm sure people didn't know when quantum theories were discovered. Nobody knew that it would lead to computers. It would lead to GPS, to lots of things. So... Well, I'm rambling, but you get my point. <laughs> Science uh, is awesome. <laughs> Science is awesome and useful. That's what I yes. should say. <laughs> exactly. So, yes, thank you to everyone for either contributing or listening to the show. <laughs> yeah. And until next week, goodbye and tschüss. <laughs> <laughs> hey, do. We slept. <laughs> okay. Yeah. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast.eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. I'm your host, Annika Harrising. <laughs> My own name. I'm your... <laughs> I think um, he... Like, no, sorry, I didn't find anything about that. Okay. We might cut that out. <laughs> And about two years... No, not two years afterwards. <laughs> it was a quicker rocket than that.